Morning, gentlemen. Good to see you. We like to uh, goof around with the overhead every once in a while, see how well you're doing on your hymn memorization. And I have to say, uh, we have a way to go yet, even on the familiar joy of the world. Those are, uh, those are stanzas worth memorizing. By the way, we used to take two weeks off for Christmas, and a few of you called us wimps. That's the reason we don't take next week off, because you called us wimps, so we took two weeks off for Christmas. You said, where's amen? What are you, taking? What do you think we're doing on the, what day was it, 23rd? What's so busy about the 23rd? You can't take it off, so you all, you all did it. If you want to push back on that, just talk to the amen guys. They're the ones who are telling me what you're saying. And the last thing you, gotta, you can be called at amen Bible study is a wimp. You've got to respond to that. Hey, uh, but next week, we do have an important text, and uh, I would encourage you to be here. Uh, chapters 10 and part of 11 are extremely important text about how the gospel goes to the Gentiles, breaks down all barriers, and it has incredible relevance for our own day here in Memphis and in our churches. So uh, next week, actually, is a very important text, as is today. Uh, let's look at Acts chapter 9. Verses 32 through 43, and uh, the reason today is so important because there's so much confusion about the nature of the gospel itself and then how it affects even our physical bodies and uh, what we should expect as Christians and so on. Uh, so the, the text that's before us today is also extremely helpful and relevant for our own day. Well, let's look at it. Verse 32, this is on page 2102. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she, Dorcas made while she was still with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. What we're going to see in the text today is something that's very important and I think misunderstood, and that is the ministry of the gospel not only to our souls or our spirits, sort of our invisible inner being, 
but also the ministry of the gospel to our bodies. And the gospel has a ministry to our bodies, as we're going to see. We also see in this text something very important. It's really the first thing uh, I want us to, to look at. But if, it, obviously, the text divides into two separate events here, and we'll, we'll divide it that way. In this first one, we want, to, we want to get this main point, that Christ heals the lame. Christ heals the sick. Christ heals the bodily wounded. Christ heals. But the first thing I want us to notice in verse 32 is an extremely important point, and that is that converts must be pastored. I want us to notice the context in which this healing event takes place. It takes place in the context of God's people being pastored and cared for. And so often, you know, we're, we're simply thinking of what we need in this world are more converts, more decisions for Christ. And of course we do. We'd love to have more converts, more decisions for Christ. But gentlemen, that's not the goal. Jesus didn't say at the end of Matthew's gospel, go into all the world and make converts. Go in all the world and lead people to pray the sinner's prayer. Go into all the world and get decisions. He said, go into all the world and make disciples. These are people who are walking with the Lord every day. So our job as Christian men, Christian leaders, is not simply to acquire a bunch of decisions. Billy Graham Crusade's a wonderful thing to get decisions for the Lord. But guys, that's just the beginning. What we're looking for are disciples, not decisions. And there's a huge difference. And let me tell you how important the difference is. When I joined the church, right when I turned 25 years of age, I made a decision. I made a decision to join the church. I made a decision to profess that I was a Christian. But I wasn't one. I didn't know it. I didn't know what a Christian was. And the church wasn't sophisticated enough to cross-examine me carefully enough to find out I wasn't a Christian. But I just wanted to join the church. I grew up in the church, wasn't converted. 25, the Lord starts working on me again. I drift back to church. These people are nice. I get involved with them. But it was later on in discipleship that I actually got converted. So what is happening is oftentimes in the evangelical Protestant church especially, we look for decisions we assume people are safe, they're going to make it to heaven, so nothing else really matters. And what we end up doing is leaving people there who are self-deluded. The percentage of people at a crusade like a Billy Graham crusade who actually are truly converted is very low. It's below 10%. Some figures have said as low as 3%. So people are making decisions, but it doesn't necessarily mean they've really received the life of the Spirit, really had their old heart taken out, a new heart put in, really become part of the invisible body of Christ. So we have to be very careful. This is a long road. Now, what I want you to notice is that converts must be pastored. It says here, now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he also came to the saints that lived in Lydda. In other words, how did he run across this man at Lydda? He was going here and there, among them all. Now notice Peter is an evangelist. You can see that very clearly in Acts chapter 2. A powerful evangelist. But he's an apostle. He's a leader in the church. He's a churchman too. And he realizes that you not only lead people to Christ, but then you care for them. And that's the reason that I suggest to you in your churches as you think about evangelizing in Memphis. 
you need to evangelize folks and then you need to get them into small groups. And then you need to convert those small groups into a church. You need to plant a church with a regular, ordinary ministry. A ministry of prayer and the sacraments and the, and the scriptures and of Christian leadership. And of course, in the Presbyterian churches, we have elders. It seems to us that that's the sort of leadership that God has provided for His church. Elders are pastors. And... Uh, of course, normally we think of elders as being unpaid. I'm an elder, but I'm paid. I'm a teaching elder. But our ruling elders, they're pastors too. But actually, every believer is to be a pastor, as we'll see. In fact, every human being is to be a pastor. Jesus was a shepherd. We want everybody to be like Jesus Christ in every way. And His whole life was shepherding. And I, I, I know some of you well enough to know that in your workplace... You have a shepherd's heart. Well, good. The whole world should have a shepherd's heart. So the church is fundamentally a pastoral family and a pastoral organization. That's our business, pastoring. And it's everybody's business. It's not just the paid clergy. And what you see here is an incredible example. Peter himself, after having evangelized, and these especially Jewish believers now are scattering out over Judea and over Samaria and and in, now toward the coast, as you can see on your map on the bottom of page 2102, this is taking him toward the Mediterranean coast. And he's just visiting, he's visiting Christians. And what do you think he's doing when he's visiting them? Well, I'll tell you what he's doing. He's answering their theological questions, their biblical questions. They're looking at the Old Testament and they're saying, tell me now, how does this verse fit in with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And Peter's interpreting the entire Old Testament in view of Jesus Christ, answering all their questions. They have new ethical questions now. They have questions about the mission of the church. Peter's trying to organize them as a pastor. Now, if you'll think about it for just a moment, it's, leave your finger in Acts uh, chapter 9, but turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 5, and here we get a classic text about pastoring from Peter, nonetheless. This is on page 2412. And Peter now in this, in this letter to a number of churches, he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. So Peter calls himself an elder as well as an apostle. A witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. How do you become a faithful elder? You learn to subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So he's, Peter says in verses 1 and 2, with everything in me as a fellow elder, as a personal witness of Christ's sufferings, as a partaker in the glory that's coming to be revealed, look at those compelling reasons that he, that he gives behind this charge. Shepherd the flock that belongs to God, but that is among you. So, that's the charge. We must care for all the flock. Now, what does that involve? Well, I've, 
I'd like to suggest it involves at least four things. Shepherding involves gathering. It does involve evangelism. You're not going to have a flock if you don't gather them. And I'd suggest to you that each of you think about your own influence with people that you know. It can be the golf club or it can be uh, in your businesses or it can be in your neighborhood. You know, if you, if you know a couple of neighbors, you can, you can just say, hey, why don't we get together once a week for a quarter and let's study this book of the Bible together. You'd be amazed how people, some people respond to that. You get three believers in your neighborhood, maybe from three different churches, and they know all the rest of the neighbors, and pretty soon you've got a dozen people there, some of whom are not believers, studying the Bible together in a home. And they're much more likely to come to your house than they are to come to this house right here on a Sunday morning. Because it's in the neighborhood, it's with people they know, it's non-threatening socially, and they like to get to know their neighbors. And what you want to do is realize you, wherever you are and wherever you exercise your influence, that's where you, you exercise your care for people. Everything about those people. Everything about them. That's what shepherding is. But the first thing you've got to do is gather them. And the only way they can be gathered is if they put their trust in the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the gospel. So you find that we're gathering. And this is what Jesus was doing in chapter 936, we're told that he looked out over the crowds and they looked like sheep without a shepherd to him. When Jesus looks at the world and all of its brokenness, here's how he would describe it. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They're out there going off over the cliff. They don't know where to get green pastures. They don't know where to get still waters. The wolves are eating them up. People are taking advantage of them. Where's the shepherd who would protect them and nourish them, feed them, and then guide them? So that's the way Jesus looks at the world. And it's the way we need to look at the world. And then, of course, we studied in Acts chapter 6 how the shepherds, the elders said, we cannot be distracted from shepherdly work. And that's where they got the help from the deacons. In Ezekiel 34, you have God Himself saying, I'm sick and tired of my sheep being taken advantage of. People are eating my sheep. And He says, I'm going to take these sheep away from you shepherds. So it's a really strong charge about those who are responsible in Israel. And then when you come to, to Luke 15, you have here the story of Jesus uh, tells in a parable where he has 100 sheep. He says, if a shepherd has 100 sheep and 99 are right here, but one goes over the hillside, will he not leave the 99 and go and get the one? So a shepherd looks out for every single one. If you're in church and let's assume you're an elder or a Sunday school teacher and you got you're 25 people right there before you regularly every week, but you got five more people who never show up. A good shepherd will go after the five as well as teach the 25. So gathering is those who have never heard the gospel and it's those who have heard and then leak off. The shepherds are always seeking to gather and protect uh, their flocks. And in John chapter 10, we have, this is that verse 10, 16 that I've listed there. Once again, Jesus says, there are sheep that are not yet of this fold. They're all over the world. They're to be gathered. So we're to gather not only those who have never heard of Jesus Christ in our neighborhoods and in our businesses. We're to gather those in the church who no longer are showing up anywhere and have gone over the hillside. And we're to go all over the world to gather these sheep. So that's first of all gathering. A shepherd is first of all a gatherer. Secondly, though, notice that a shepherd is a feeder. He gathers and then he feeds. And we know this because, once again, Peter had a poignant moment with the Lord Jesus Christ after Christ's resurrection. Peter didn't know what to do except to go fishing like he always did. So after the resurrection, he said, well, wow, that was really something else. He goes off and goes fishing. Where's Jesus? I don't know. I'll go fishing. 
Well, Jesus goes where Peter is, goes fishing. And they catch 153 fish, remember? And Peter says, that's the Lord, puts on his coat, dives in, goes to the shore and goes to see Jesus. And Jesus says to him three times, Peter, do you love me? And of course, why does he do it three times? Because Peter denied him three times. This is very painful. Peter says, you know everything. You know that I love you. And three times Jesus says, feed my sheep or feed my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. So we're to be shepherds. We gather them and we feed them. How do we feed them? Well, obviously, we feed them with the gospel, with the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. We feed them with the scriptures. We feed them with Christian fellowship. We feed them with the sacraments. We feed them with a mutual accountability and a loving context, family context of the church. We feed them with love. We feed them with prayers for them. So we nurture and feed the flock. Thirdly, shepherds have to guard the flock. So shepherding involves guarding. You not only feed the flock positively and nourish them, but you have to fight off the wolves that are coming to take their lives. And I'm telling you, it's true today. There are wolves that are out there who are bidding for the hearts and minds of the people in the church. And then, as Jesus said, there are wolves who wear sheep's clothing who come inside the church and seek to take them away from inside the church. It's called heresies from inside the church and apostasies. So you will always have this. You shouldn't be surprised when you have these major uh, outlandish things happening in your church. Well, that's been the strategy of the evil one from the beginning. What's the answer? Shepherds who realize this is your job. It's not your job just to say, oh, business is business, or these things happen. Or, you know, old Susie, sometimes she goes off a rocker or whatever. No, you learn how to oppose these things in a gentle but firm manner, in a godly manner, truth in love. That's the, the weapon of the shepherd. We don't beat on anybody like a physical shepherd, but we use the Word of God and prayer, and we teach. And you notice in the apostles' ministries, they are presenting the gospel, and then they're defending the gospel. And if you look at the pastoral epistles, you'll see that Paul even calls out names. Now let me tell you about Alexander, he says. Well, let me tell you about this person. Watch out for that person. I mean, he knows that the sheep are in danger from wolves on the outside and on the inside. Shepherds know this. And if you're a physical shepherd, you know that you're not going to take care of sheep unless you're ready to engage some ferocious animals and drive them off. That's just the way it is. So shepherding. This is what Peter was doing. Peter was realizing, and we see it in the book of Acts, that as soon as the resurrection and Pentecost take place and the revival starts to hit the church and people get converted, immediately you've got opposition of all kinds. We've already seen this. Whose responsibility is it to address it? Anyone who has a shepherd's heart. Fourthly, notice that shepherds lead. You get this with David in 2 Samuel chapter 5, that he was the shepherd over Israel, the people said. You're to lead us. Lead into battle, but lead us as a nation. Psalm 23, the good shepherd, God himself, leads us into green pastures and still waters. Ephesians 4, what are pastors and teachers in the church for? What are elders and leaders in the church for? Well, so that we might be conformed to the image of Christ and grow up into the head, which is Christ. So we've got people who are being led to the conformity of Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. What's the end of the church? Paul says, I preach, I teach, I admonish in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in order to present everyone perfect in Him. In order to present everyone mature in Him. 
So I'm gathering, I'm caring for and nourishing, feeding, I am guarding off, warding off the wolves, and I am leading a flock of people, however large or small it may be, in order that they may be like Jesus Christ. And if you take that on as life mission, let me tell you what, you got a life mission. It's not going to end. And every one of us need to be thinking now, where is my, where is my pastoral group? Who is it? If you're a father, hey, let me start right here. Your kids. And you know what? I'm, I've noticed now as a, as a father of five kids who are now adult kids, that my role is not exactly administered in the same way it was when they were teenagers. But my heart is the same, if not more for them. I probably am tempted to worry more than ever before. I probably pray for them more now as adults than I ever did before. Why? That's my shepherd's role. My shepherd's role is not to be sure they get up and go to school on time, they do their homework. That rolls over. That was part of my shepherd's role years ago. But I still have a shepherd's role to pray for them, to encourage them, to be available to them, to give time to them, to let them know what I see in their lives that really is going so well. That's my role. It's my shepherd's role. Start with your family, beginning with your wife. The name husband means to take care of a garden. The name shepherd means to take care of a flock. It's the same thing. You're taking care of. And in Ephesians 5, you notice that we're to present our wives radiant without wrinkle. That'll be a nice one, won't it? Without spot or wrinkle before the Lord. We're to present them. So they are the results in some way of our ministry, pastoral ministry to them. So the first role you have with your, pa your wife is pastor. And what about those who are your friends and acquaintances? What about those you play golf with? Have you ever thought about the fact that if you're playing golf with a foursome, you're the only believer there. There is your church right there. Somebody gets sick and goes to the hospital, boom, you're right there to see them. You're the pastor. And you can just say, hey, Joe, uh, you know, you're in the hospital. I'm standing up here. Uh, I know how to pray. How about if I pray for you? Pray for them right there. I tell you what, I've had more unbelievers tell me that they were more deeply grateful for prayer than for anything else a believer ever did for them. And you think that maybe that's an invasion of their privacy? Well, maybe a few would feel that way. But by and large, what I hear them saying is, look, I don't know how to pray, but Joe knows how to pray, and he's praying for me. So you just you look at this realm where you have influence, and you want to be a shepherd. That's what Peter's doing. That's what gets him into a place where he can see God work very powerfully, which God is getting ready to do. But meanwhile... In the non-miraculous realm, or at least the non-physically miraculous realm, Peter is moving about doing spiritually miraculous work, which is leading people to Christ and nurturing them in Him. That's exactly what we're supposed to be doing. Converts must be pastored. So when you think about your Christian strategy for Memphis, Tennessee, you've got to be thinking about evangelism, but you've got to be thinking about holistic ministry to the whole person over the long haul. That's the only way things are going to change. Now, verse 33, B, we notice that pastoring includes caring for the sick. Pastoring includes caring for the sick. We've already hinted at it. But when someone is sick around you, that gets your attention and your pastoral instincts come out. James 5 has something to say about this. If you are sick, call upon the elders, the shepherds in the church, to come pray and anoint you with oil. Pastoring includes 
caring for the sick. It says here that then he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Okay? Peter cares about that man. He's paralyzed. He's probably not going to make a small group leader or, or he's not going to make an elder or a deacon. He's probably not going to give a dime to the church, but he gets Peter's attention immediately because he is sick. And this is exactly what's supposed to be happening to us. And let me tell you why. It's exactly the, what got the attention of the church through the ages. If you'll read uh, some of John Stark's, uh, that's S-T-R-A-R-K, S-T-A-R-K. So read some of John Stark's books on the early church. You'll see his great historical work there that shows that the church, above everybody else, was caring for the sick and the dying, was caring for the poor and the diseased, when nobody else in the Roman Empire would take care of them. And the church established its early reputation and its explosive growth for 300 years upon their care for the sick and the grieving and the weak and the marginalized in the urban areas in the Roman Empire. That is how the church established its entire reputation. And the church didn't do it because they were trying to establish a reputation. The church did it because we're followers of Jesus Christ, and that's exactly what he did. He preached, he taught in the synagogues, and he healed the sick. And we've always been drawn to the poor and the sick. That's exactly what's happening here. Now, if you're a Pentecostal, you can have healing services and care for the sick. If you're Presbyterians, you better build hospitals. <laughs> Either way, care for the sick. And that's what we've done historically. Now, notice then in, in verse 34, see, God sometimes heals the sick. He does sometimes. Christ heals in our own day. I've seen it. I've prayed for people, and I'm not a Pentecostal. I'm a Presbyterian. If someone dramatically got healed in my presence, I'd probably croak. They'd have to raise me from the dead, you know, because I'm not expecting that. I should, I should ask the Lord to make me uh, a useful servant of His in every way. It's just the history of my praying has not been that people rise up immediately from their illness. But I have prayed for people, and they have been healed. I've seen it with my own eyes. I remember a case uh, in a previous church I served. A Stuart Bickley, a young guy, just got married and then quickly had two little daughters. And Stuart developed an esophageal cancer that was uh, mean and nasty. He goes to a doctor, a very fine doctor in our congregation, and the doctor told me, he says, Sandy, this one is not good at all. It just doesn't look good. It's very aggressive and it's very sinister cancer. And the whole community was riled up about it. Two little girls, uh, this dear Christian family. So we held a prayer meeting for Stuart. And we prayed for him and anointed him with oil, and the church actually was packed out. We laid hands on Stuart and prayed for him. Gentlemen, all I can tell you is, this was 20 years ago, Stuart is alive, and his daughter, he'd been to his daughter's wedding, and he is doing just fine. That's one of the most dramatic cases of healing uh, coming from a prayer meeting, anointing service I think I've ever seen. Man healed from cancer. On the other hand, a dear woman in the first congregation I served named Kathy Timko had breast cancer. And she was 36 years of age and two girls. A very godly woman. A leader in our church. And we prayed for her over and over and over again. 
And I'll never forget my last visit with her when she was conscious at her hospital bed. And she said, Sandy, do you mind sitting down for a minute? I want to give you the order of worship in my funeral. She was thinking about those who had come behind her and about her girls and what she wanted them to hear from me and from others. And believe me, when we got to her funeral, that was Kathy Temko's funeral. She wasn't healed. If you ask me which one was spiritually more mature, well, I'm not going to say, but I'll just say this. Kathy Temko was a wonderful, godly woman. Sometimes he heals. Sometimes he doesn't. But I've seen God heal, and he certainly heals here with the apostles. But I want us to be very careful about something, because there are some, shall we say, excesses and misunderstandings about healing. There are some who believe that God is willing to heal us, ready to heal us, and desirous of healing us, and all He needs is a believing sick person so that through faith we can appropriate His healing power. And the reason we're not healed is because we do not believe sufficiently or we're involved in a church that doesn't believe in healing or you got the wrong pastor praying for you. You need to get somebody who really believes in healing to lay their hands on you to heal you. That's what some people say. And often... They, they'll have a, what appears to be a very strong theological argument. And I want to follow that argument with you for just a minute. Turn to uh, Matthew chapter 8. And I have to admit that when this text was first given to me by some Pentecostals, I, I was a little, it took me a, a few minutes to figure this one out. Um, in chapter 8, Jesus, uh, you'll find at the top, this is page 1836, right there at the top of the page. And when Jesus, verse 14, entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. So, no exceptions. He healed all who were sick. And here's the reason. Verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, here's the argument that I heard made. You see, this is from Isaiah 53, where Isaiah is talking about the atonement of the Messiah. And what Matthew is saying is, Jesus healed everybody because healing is in the atonement itself. So just as anyone who had believed can be saved by the atonement, anyone who believes can be healed by the atonement because healing is in the atonement just as surely as eternal salvation is in the atonement. Pretty convincing argument, wouldn't you say? Well, let's, let's stop for just a moment. Think about the atonement. Indeed, the first thing, gentlemen, no matter what Christian tradition you may come from or no tradition at all, let, let's get this straight. That was a fulfillment of the atonement. In other words, healing is in the atonement. And Jesus, it says here by Matthew, Jesus was healing because healing virtue comes from His atonement on our behalf. Now, He hadn't died yet. He hadn't provided the atonement yet but he was already beginning to work it out. Or you could say he drew a check on an account that didn't have its deposit yet. But he was, he was writing checks. He was, 
He was healing people before he died on the cross. And it was coming out of, Matthew says here, a fulfillment of the promise that the atonement would provide healing. Here's the problem. The application of the benefits of the atonement are both now and later. Let me tell you what else is in the atonement. Resurrection. Let me tell you what else is in the atonement. Eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. You don't have that yet, do you? No. Some things for the atonement, like your justification, your adoption by God as a son of God, your power of sanctification, your sonship, your freedom from sin, your eternal life begins now. Those things are in the atonement. They begin now. But some things have to wait for later. So the problem with the overblown, and I'm sorry if you're Pentecostal, I'm not trying to trash you, I'm just saying your tradition is the one that most often will, I think, uh, transgress in this area, to claim that things are necessarily available to us now that are really only promised for later. This is the reason for the two comings of Jesus Christ. In His first advent, He comes to save His people from their sins. And the salvation begins now. Now is the day of salvation. The work has begun. But gentlemen, the kingdom is still coming. And it comes in His consummation at His second advent. And if you'll notice, the way that He infallibly distributes the benefits of His atonement are in the realm in which He is present. Stick with me. He is present with us spiritually. And therefore, every spiritual blessing from the heavenly realms, Paul says, is ours. Every spiritual blessing from the heavenly realms. Why? Because Christ is present spiritually. One day Jesus Christ is returning physically. And when you have His physical blessings, let me tell you something. All goodness and all health is going to break out. I didn't say hell, I said health. H-E-A-L-T-H. All health is going to break out. Because He's present in His physical body. His glorified, resurrected, ascended, glorious body. And that body radiates health to every other body. And that's the reason your body will be completely healed when you see Him physically. You can't be in His physical presence and have a physical problem. You can't be in His spiritual presence and not have His spiritual blessings if you're trusting in Him. So what we've got to realize is, yes, it's all in the atonement. And the application of the atonement's benefits are in two epochs. We're in the last epoch before the final climax. And then we enter the eternal epoch. Now you'll notice in Matthew 8 that He healed everybody. Now there were occasions, weren't there? We have them in the Scriptures when Jesus was amazed at the lack of faith among the people and could do no miracles. Well, it was simply because He chose not to do miracles. Because He chose that in that case He would do miracles through faith and there was none there. But notice with the, in Jesus Christ, He heals everybody. Why? He's in His own healing body. And He's with us bodily in His first advent. Now in His second advent, it will be a glorious body. And so the healing will spread to the entire cosmos. In His first advent, He was in a human body before resurrection, before glorification. The body He was in was not yet glorified. But when He touched he healed everybody. He healed all diseases and He healed everybody. In Jesus' ministry, in three years, there were 35 miracles. When you get to the apostles, over 30 years, there were 10 miracles. 
The apostles healed intermittently. Jesus healed continually. Ultimately, it's all about Jesus and the benefits of His atonement that are appropriate. Now you say, if the physical healing then, in perfection, waits for the second coming of Christ, why are people still healed now? I don't know. It's called mercy. Grace. And Jesus can do whatever He wants to from His throne. He's working through fallible people, including apostles. In the apostolic age, Paul says the very signs of the apostles are that they work miracles. You would know an apostle, he works miracles. I don't see any apostles here. We don't have any apostles here. They, the apostolic age has ceased, and yet we're still in the apostolic age. And God does choose to heal from time to time, and I've seen it myself. Some of you have seen it. We must be very careful, however, from the inferences that we draw from those healings. First of all, we're not quite sure if a healing is a miraculous healing or not. Now, I hesitate to say that because there's a sense in which every healing is miraculous. The fact that we're drawing breath this morning and haven't croaked already is miraculous. That there has to be a sustaining of human life by God Himself or life ceases. There is no life without God positively sustaining the life. And that's what He's doing in your life right now. So I hesitate to say, you know, there may be a miraculous healing or may not, because any healing is miraculous. Life is miraculous. So it's all, we almost need a sacramental view of the universe, if you will. God is suffused through everything. He sustains everything all the time. But when you see a suspension of ordinary cause and effect in the natural realm, then we normally would say, that's miraculous. In other words, the normal laws of cause and effect in nature have been suspended. Sometimes we'll look at an unusual healing and we'll say, I know that's a miracle. Well, I don't know. Maybe the time that you prayed by God's providence, maybe it's what we would call a special providence. God's answering your prayer, but He chose to heal that person at the same time that you were praying for it. He appointed your prayer for that person. I don't know how that all works. You know what? I don't need to. I'm going to continue to pray because He commanded me to. And because He promises that He hears my prayers and He answers them. And God can do whatever He pleases to do. And I will worship Him and praise Him for whatever He gives us whenever He gives it. Whether it's what we consider good or bad. Whether we consider it pleasurable or painful. It's from the Lord. And we saw that with Job, didn't we? That we don't always understand things. But God's at work in this life. And He does answer prayers. And He does heal at times when He chooses. But sometimes, gentlemen, He chooses not to heal. And we saw that clearly in the Old Testament wisdom literature, and we should get it straight here too. As a matter of fact, I've listed there 2 Corinthians 12. Here you have the Apostle Paul. He prayed three times for the thorn in his flesh to be delivered from him. And he was told, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul said, therefore, I will boast in my weakness. Because God will give you grace no matter what the circumstance is. Sometimes He heals. He healed through the Apostle Paul, but then He didn't heal the Apostle Paul himself. Why? I don't know. But I know that what Paul is saying is His grace was exalted in both cases. So we know our healing is coming. But we must wait, gentlemen. 
Meanwhile, we'll continue to pray for healing now, as temporary as it is. Because let me tell you something about this paralytic. His dust is in the ground somewhere in Israel. He's no longer alive. He got healed and then he died. So his healing was only temporary. So let's not get overly excited, but let's realize that God has His purpose in healings. And I tell you what, there were some people who came to Christ when Stuart got healed. Which leads us to D. God's healings turn hearts to the Lord. This is the purpose. Christ is exalted. Christ does the healing. He gets the credit. He gets the honor. When the church goes out and cares for people, who's supposed to get the honor for that? Well, your preaching will interpret your actions. Your preaching tells the world you're caring for the poor. You're taking care of the indigent. You're providing medical insurance for the working poor because of Jesus Christ. And Christ gets exalted. And here you see, people will turn their hearts to the Lord. Oh, is that what Jesus does? He moves people to take care of indigent people? Well, I don't see anybody else really doing that with the kind of zeal you all have. Well, what's going on over there? Well, let me tell you, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ heals the lame, and when He does it, He does it for His glory. And believe me, when He comes back and He heals all the lame, and you see the ones who have been in wheelchairs all of a sudden jumping up and leaping for joy, you will see that Jesus Christ is honored and glorified. Now, second text, we only have 13 minutes here. Christ not only heals the lame, but in this second pericope, Christ raises the dead. Christ raises the dead. And I want us to notice two main things about the text. First of all, death affects everybody. It affects us all. Regardless of our good works, Dorcas was a wonderful woman, a notable woman, an exemplary woman. And death grabbed her. And sometimes, sometimes even well-intentioned Christians get in their minds that illness or illness unto death or death itself is somehow God's discipline on the person. Let me tell you what. It's regardless of your good works, regardless of your good character, death is going to hit every one of us. It's going to be like that when your family is gathered at your funeral. And there'll be tears, and in some of our cases, a little bit of rejoicing. <laughs> but it's not going to be long, gentlemen. And for those of you who are younger in this room, let me tell you, it's going to happen like that. And as you get older, you're going to be thinking about it more and more. Six feet under is just around the corner for you. It's going to happen to everybody unless Jesus Christ comes back. And we need to be thinking about it. And we need to be figuring out what the solution to this is. Gentlemen, when you got a big problem, what you try to do after you get your nervousness over and you kind of get calmed down, okay, you got a big problem, you got to sit down and solve the problem. No matter how big the problem is, a man's duty eventually is sit down and solve the problem. And if you're in warfare somewhere and you're surrounded by the enemy and your bullets are zinging around, you got to get, get your head down and figure out, okay, what is the solution to this problem? Well, let me tell you what your big problem is. The last enemy, the biggest enemy, is death itself. And if you're a man, you need to sit down and figure this problem out for you and your loved ones and everybody you're shepherding. What's the answer to this? Because it's going to happen to everybody regardless of their good works. Even believers. Believers in the resurrection. Just because you believe in the resurrection doesn't mean you're not going to die. Jesus' best friend Lazarus dies. 
Everybody's going to die. And why does it affect us all? Well, not only because we die, but because others around us die. It's because of deep love. We're all deeply affected by death. My mother turns 92 in February, and yesterday she went to the funeral, I think, of the next to the last intimate friend, non-family intimate friend she's got in this life. Uh, my mother lost her mother and her daddy. She lost her husband, her husband's mother and his daddy. Her husband's five siblings and all of their spouses that were good friends to her, they're all gone. Uh, all of her siblings, except one, gone, uh, including her older sister, who is her, her love of life. She had about 12 intimate friends. They're all but one gone. The only one left is 10 years her junior. And I'm telling you, if you live long enough, you're just going to be absolutely overwhelmed with death. It's grabbing us all. All right? Let's look at verses 40 through 43. And let's look at this. Resurrection transforms everything, gentlemen. Everything. And this is the only solution. And it's an absolutely glorious solution. It's a solution you need to be attaching yourself to right now with all of your heart. You need to be getting the message out. This is the answer to life's worst problem. And I don't care if a man has $100 million or $2 billion or whatever he's got. Let me tell you, he only has it for a few years. And then he doesn't have it anymore. He's as poor as the poorest person on the face of the earth. He has nothing. Whatever that man has, it is just for a very short period. And so he cannot protect himself. Now he can build a huge mausoleum in Elmwood. And we can all go and say wonderful things about him. But let me tell you something. That doesn't change his status or his pleasure one bit. He doesn't hear anything you're saying. And furthermore, let me let you in on something. He doesn't give a rip about anything you're saying. Doesn't matter to him. It has nothing to do with him. None of his possessions, none of his relationships, nothing. It's all gone. He's as poor as Job's turkey. He's dead. He's cold. He's six feet under. There's nothing that matters to him in this life anymore. There's only one thing that transforms things. And that is the hope of the resurrection. That is the life that Jesus gives dead people because dead people can't give dead people anything. But Jesus Christ claims, and actually shows it here, He gives life to dead people. There's something beyond the ravaging entail of death itself. Look here. Peter, but Peter sent them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Now what you'll notice here, I've mentioned this text, Mark 5, 38 through 43. This is a picture of what Jesus did. Peter is doing what Jesus did. Peter was with Jesus when the centurion came to him and said, My daughter is ill. And by the time Jesus got there, the daughter was dead. And the centurion was thinking, This Messiah, he just won't move fast enough. If you'd gotten here earlier. And all the people were weeping. And Jesus said to them, She's not dead. She's just sleeping. And they said, ha, 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 who are you? What are you talking about, you idiot? And Jesus sent them all out of the house. And he said to the little girl, Talitha kum, which in Aramaic means little girl, arise. Look what Peter says. Not Talitha kum, Tabitha kum. 
He's walking right in the steps of Jesus Christ because he believes in the power of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And obviously as an apostle, Jesus Christ told him, raise that woman, raise that woman up. And that's exactly what he did. He spoke to her. And we looked to Christ. He got down and knelt down and prayed. And he had counted on Jesus Christ to heal the paralytic. He's looking to Jesus Christ now to raise her. And that's what I'm looking to. I'm telling you as a pastor who gets paid for it, a pastor who pastors a church and not just a family or, or my uh, associates in business, but seeking to pastor a church, I'm looking to Jesus Christ for this church. Jesus Christ, you raise these people up. Jesus Christ, you heal these people. Jesus, these are your people. And all I have is the right to ascend in my prayers to His throne and plead with Him on behalf of these people. I can't do anything for these people, but Jesus Christ can sure do something for them. And this is what Peter's doing. He gets everybody out of that room and he kneels down. He knows who to talk to. He goes to headquarters. And look what happens. Christ raises us. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Gentlemen, the word for raised her up is the word for resurrection. What Peter is showing is that God actually resurrects dead people. And the apostolic ministry and the Jesus ministry is just a foretaste of the ultimate ministry when He comes back. He is going to say like He did to Lazarus. I list the text here from John chapter 11. Lazarus, come out just by a word of His command. And with His command, Lazarus, a dead man for three days with tomb clothes still wrapped around him, comes out of the grave. A dead man can't help but obey Jesus Christ when he makes a command. You can talk all you want to to a dead man. He's not going to smile. He's not going to frown. He's not going to cry. He's not going to burp. He's not going to do anything. But when Jesus Christ talks to him, he answers. And life takes place in that dead body. Now gentlemen, this is what we're dealing with. We have a live wire. We have 240 volts surging through history itself. Jesus Christ is life, and He's willing to speak life into people. And that's the life we're ministering to others when we share the gospel and when we pastor them. And look what happens. What you have here in the apostolic ministry is a picture, just a picture, of what's going to happen in the last day. And so what we have in verses 41b and 43 is that the world shall praise Him. When Peter raises up, or Christ raises up this woman through Peter, look what happens. Then calling the saints and the widows, those who had been bereft by death of their husbands, he presented her alive. And it became known everywhere throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a Tanner. We'll get to Simon the Tanner uh, next week. But look what happens. The reputation of Jesus is growing as the church takes care of the poor and the sick, as we minister to the bereaved, and when the apostles actually are seeing people being raised up from the dead, the reputation of Jesus goes out. All Joppa knows it. They're all now turning to get help from the Lord Jesus Christ. Gentlemen, what do you think is going to happen? When Jesus Christ comes back, and there's not just a spot resurrection here, a a little Dorcas over here, a little Lazarus over here, a little son of Nain over here. No. What happens when He comes and the entire church of Jesus Christ rises up from the dead and they're all garbed as He was garbed to His resurrection in white linen, 
radiant faces, glorifying the world with their light. What do you think the world is going to say? Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what they're going to say. And that is the end of all of history. What we need to realize now between the Advents, the first and second Advent, that this is what has been begun in us. This is the great redemptive work of God that has already begun and is now at work. So that when we're sharing the gospel with people, when we lead people to Christ, you realize what you're doing. You are putting another seed in the ground eventually, six feet under, that's going to bear a harvest for the Lord Jesus Christ and for His glory. You've changed that person's eternal destiny. That's what's at stake. And you see it here, right here, when we see how Christ heals the lame and He raises the dead for His everlasting glory. That's the gospel. It's not just a gospel that saves our souls. It's a gospel that saves our bodies as well. Wow, does it ever save it. And I can't wait to see the day when people who have struggled in this life with many tears, many sorrows, many afflictions, many diseases are not only delivered of those diseases, but forever satisfied, gloriously satisfied as a resurrected saint before the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, please forgive us for our very narrow and shallow thoughts about the meaning of the gospel in our lives and in this world. We confess that we go about our business rarely thinking about what we're actually doing and the significance of it. And we pray today that, especially during this Advent season and leading up to Christmas tide, that you'll bless us with a, a deeper appreciation for what it meant for Jesus to come to this world and to gather a people unto Himself, to heal us in every way, and to raise us from the dead, so that we can say on that last day, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is gone because of the resurrection. And we pray now that we may set our eyes and our hearts and our minds on these things, that we may live as the people of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you.